0: Start filling up the room. Let's just listen to sound, the sounds in the room, the stillness for just a few moments. Let's talk a bit about right livelihood tonight. If you recall, early in the retreat, very early, Vimlo gave a talk on the Noble Eightfold Path, which provides a guide, a comprehensive guide to living, so that the approach taken is not a narrow one, but actually can engage every aspect of our life. And right livelihood is part of that Eightfold Path. The subject is beginning to point towards where we're going back to. And being here for almost a couple of weeks now, perhaps you're seeing the many supports that are provided for the mind at a retreat. Just being in the country just having the agreement of people to not speak or to speak uh, very little, to be encouraged to not overeat, some help with learning how to sit straight and comfortably. All these supports contribute to inquiring into the mind, to learning about the mind. And then right livelihood, in one sense, is another one of these supports. That is, if your work life is problematic, either because you're in the wrong job, or you don't have a job, perhaps meaning you don't have enough money, then this is a, a problem. <clears throat> these kind of loose ends, just as your body might be loose ends if there's a lot of tension, or if we were to try to meditate in the middle of New York City. There are many obstacles to coming to stillness. And the right livelihood aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path points to one very important one. If you read the uh, <clears throat> in most introductions to Buddhism the description of right livelihood, what is emphasized are the aspects of the choice of work which have to do with causing suffering in the world or not. That is, certain jobs seem to create suffering for others. And so the emphasis is very often on the ethical aspects of the choice of occupation. Such jobs having to do with killing or slavery or use of intoxicants etc. are discouraged because of the obvious fact that in order to earn your livelihood, you are doing so at the expense of others. And jobs which um, incline one to lie or to uh, manipulate facts are also in that category. There is jobs that are harmful. What I'd like to emphasize tonight and perhaps, hopefully, use as an opportunity for us to bring together a lot of what we've been learning is an aspect of livelihood having to do with harmfulness, but to ourselves. That is, if we're in the wrong work, if we ha- or if we haven't made peace with the work that we are in, then we're creating trouble in the world, we're creating suffering, and it's for ourselves. Not to mention the reverberations that come out of that for others who are in our life. If such a substantial part of our life is unsatisfying. And so, in a way, step number one is a an aspect of self-knowledge and self-inquiry. We have a certain number of years on this planet. How are we going to use that time? Because each moment is precious. What are we doing with it? Is, our work, which perhaps is a good many hours a week. What is it What is it really? What does it amount to? Of course, inquiring as to whether it creates suffering for others, but then coming to its overall meaning for us in life. And as you look around, I think in particularly these days, although not having been alive in other days, to my knowledge, maybe it's always been the same, but it seems, based on what I can tell, that the whole occupational structure is uh, decomposing or something, especially for meditators. And so constantly, I know in my work in Cambridge and in Boston, it's very common for people who are drawn to meditation to either have um, come out of some occupation that they're disenchanted with, or if they're much younger, perhaps not having found an occupation yet, or a way of channeling that kind of energy and coming to meditation as a kind of raft. And it seems these days, if, if you, it's rare to meet somebody who's uh, fit for the job they're in, that they're appropriate for it. They may be competent, doing a good job, but it's really the right work for them. Perhaps the trouble starts in childhood because What perhaps isn't asked enough is, um, as a child is growing up, is the kind of work that would be done out of love for the child. In other words, to help a child discover what they really love to do. In other words, if parents could do that, if they could help children discover what they really love to do, right at the beginning and not load it down so much with other considerations like economic security, status, prestige, and so forth. Perhaps more of us would straight away understand how important it is to come to terms with that directly and seek out work which takes up so much of our life that is an expression of who we are, that's appropriate, creative, that we love. But it doesn't seem to be the case that this is so. And so, we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. Okay, now, I see a group of people in front of me, and you're all in different situations. Perhaps it's not a problem for many of you. Step number one in the life of an inquirer is to inquire. Because no matter what it is, it's not so much to seek out how to find the right job, because we find ourselves here right now. We're not children. We're who we are at this moment in certain situations. If you're in a job, just what is that job? Begin with that child mind that we talked about a few nights ago, a mind that is not embarrassed to say it doesn't know, that's willing to look at something fresh. So instead of reading books about vocational guidance or all the different occupations that are available. Start where you are, both in terms of the state of your mind, and if it's a concrete job, just what is that job? What do I actually do? And and try to see that in as innocent a way as possible. Moving with it and seeing the implications of what you find out for yourself. Now, if it turns out that for any reason it's not appropriate, then inquiry would go into that. would go into whether it's confusion or fear or the need to live out certain kinds of experiences before committing oneself. And it requires complete openness so that you see it's not a kind of superficial vocational guidance. It's an integral part of self-knowledge to to seriously attempt to find out what our work is. Perhaps our true work, for all of us, it's all the same. For all of us, our original job is to get free. I don't know if you agree with that. But but then again, there are these other kinds of jobs that we have to do along the way. Now, the way I'm speaking is setting up spiritual practice, a dharma, and job is two different things. Clearly, they needn't be, and that's one theme I would like to get to in a moment. And so what's required is a certain courage sometimes, because it might mean that you have to see that you are confused. You're having the foggiest ideas to what your job should be, how you should be spending perhaps thousands of hours on this planet. And so it's asking us to open up and allow what comes up to come up, including fear, aversion, terrible feelings that accompany confusion. At a certain age, you're not supposed to be confused anymore. It's illegal if you're an adult. And yet, we find ourselves confused. And the path of self-knowledge is to not be ashamed of that. It's to see that as an aspect of being alive. All humans that I've ever known, we all find ourselves confused from time to time. And so it's part of the re-education is not trying to replace confusion with a kind of pseudo- clarity, or is to jump the step of facing the confusion or the bewilderment by inventing something that the thinking mind declares is clarity, just to reassure us, but rather starting with where we are, which might mean confusion, fear, whatever, whatever you find. What I'm suggesting is that it can be a big help in life to find the correct occupation. Now, it may turn out that you can't find the work that you love to do. If you look around, it seems as if most of us don't. This is my own observation, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. Most of the people I know are not doing what they love to do, for whatever reason. I always wanted to be a this, but my family came along, or the war came along, or the depression, something. Well then, what is suggested in terms of the whole spirit of right livelihood, which is to uh, make life not a problem, to learn how to live a harmonious way, to make it meditative, in other words, the practice is not a technique, it's really a way of life, the way of awareness, it's a way of living, would then be to say, okay, granted, I don't seem to be able to find what I love to do, And this is what I am going to be doing. I'm going to be a waitress, or I'm going to be a taxi cab driver, or I'm going to be whatever it is. Then the question becomes, is there some way of rehabilitating that job from within? So that it is, in a sense, bringing Dharma energy to it, infusing it with life. That means being free enough to disregard perhaps the conventional job description for what it is. And it's mainly an inward transformation because very often the outer job can't be changed. There are people who control that. Let me give you an example which I've had a fair amount of experience with living in the Cambridge area. There are enormous numbers of people and have been for some time. Seem to be more now, but I don't know if that's true. Who are working as waiters or waitresses or driving taxi cabs. And most of the people who are doing this are not really waiters or waitresses or cabbies. They're ballerinas, brain surgeons, writers, dancers. Whereas, I'm just doing this for a little while. But really what I am is, and then plug in some creative occupation. But sometimes when you get to know the person better, it turns out they've been doing it for seven or eight years or that they're going to be doing it perhaps longer. And so there's a kind of a a mental game that goes on where we don't fully take stock of uh, the actuality of our life. And so quite typically, for example, I'm thinking of specific people who I've known, working as waiters or waitresses and not liking it, putting in their time, looking at the clock, it having a deadening effect, and very dedicated to meditation very concerned with all the issues that we are here and one thing that can be done it just takes a slight twist is to let go of the conventional definition of let's say waiter or waitress as a, a not a high status occupation and just look at it for what what is it people are coming into a restaurant They're hungry, sometimes they're lonely, sometimes they're coming to be together. For some people, it's the high point of the day. And you can play a role there. You have a part to play. And if you drop the conventional status notions, which we've been educated with, it's a wonderful job. I mean, it has as much of a contribution to what's going on as most other occupations. And so you might just be outwardly just like any other waiter or waitress. But now the resistance is gone and there isn't this identification with some description that society has given us and which we subscribe to and then limit ourselves by. And I've seen some people do that and being a waiter or a waitress or whatever it is becomes totally transformed, a different occupation, a real opportunity to practice. Now this may sound like a cliché, kind of romantic, But I I do know some people who are doing it. And so they see their opportunity when they go to work as another occasion to bring meditation into their life. And the challenge of doing work like that is exactly what it is. All these new people coming and going. Now, Now, you know all the other occupations and it's different for each person. It may not be that the occupation is it. It's the state of mind that one is in, and maybe it's easier when you're doing work that you love. So that it's possible that people are doing quite menial work, menial in quotes, and yet there's no problem at all. They're at one. Okay, if you're not, and if, you, if your life is such that you come to Barry and then you're totally a yogi, do the slow walking, sit fastidiously, don't miss any sittings, eat carefully, and then go back out and have your energy tied up in jobs that don't fit you and haven't begun to deal with it directly, either of letting go of the job and moving towards something that's more appropriate, which often means taking a risk, which may mean facing certain insecurity, financial and otherwise. Well then, it's a little bit like being in a boat that has water and you're bailing it out with one can and drilling, uh, uh, you know, and drilling a hole in the boat with the other. And as you're coming here and working on yourself and then going back out there and undermining exactly what you've accomplished here. And that's what part of the, the power of the Eightfold Path is. It's comprehensive. It's meant as a kind of, in part, to point to the various compartments of life and can be used to, in a way as part of investigation. What is my work life like? Or with right speech, just what happens when I do talking? And so forth, with all the aspects of, that, of the path. It doesn't even have to be an occupation. I mean, it, it allows for the possibility of you taking different jobs at different times, being really free, and just working within the limits of what you need it's more what you bring to it, that it is our life during the time that we're doing it. Now, the approach taken here is that intensive practice is everywhere. It's not just coming up. You know, I think we talked about this at the beginning of the retreat or at the end of the weekend. There's a way of speaking in Dharma circles that, of calling intensive practice basically what we've been doing, sitting quietly up here. And then we go back into daily life And it's really intensive practice in daily life, not and daily life. And intensive practice means bringing the highest quality of attention and sensitivity and willingness to learn to whatever it is we're doing. And if we happen to be at IMS, then we do that. We sit wholeheartedly, we walk wholeheartedly. And when we leave here, it's that same spirit. So there's no break. If you have that frame of reference, then it's a whole life. No matter where you are is perfect, a perfect time and place to practice, no matter where. And no matter what the conditions. It's a very liberating idea. And now we just have to put it into effect. If you don't, it's just a, another cliche. Okay. When we explore work, from this point of view, and so here, from a a meditative or a Dharma point of view, work is not simply an economic activity. It's certainly one of its functions. We need to have enough money to live, but it's also an extremely important aspect of it. Would be personal unfoldment. That it's a, a very highly charged area for us to develop and grow in. And just to sketch a few, uh, another aspect of work. So far, I've talked about work in a way as a problematic aspect of our life. We don't know what to do or we don't have the right job. But supposing you do have the right job, there's another kind of trouble that comes in. And that is, let's say you're very good at what you do. It becomes very easy to identify with that skill system and with the fruit of your labor. And before you know it, what you're doing is putting so much energy into your, these self descriptions about ourselves. And work is one of the most important ones, at least for quite a while. When you met new people, one of the first things you ask them is, well, what do you do? Not what is your religion or even where you come from, but what's your job? That's starting to change a bit. But especially in the United States, into the 60s and 50s, job was almost a religion. And so many people put so much into the job, and that's where the self-worth and self-respect comes from. If you're good at a job, you have to be really careful that what's happening is that there's an identification with the particular skill system, with your sense of competence. And what that's doing is taking you further and further away from what you're trying to do when you sit. The me... The ego is getting bigger and bigger around work. And there may be a certain contentment and fulfillment, but from the point of view of the the journey that we're on, that has to be let go of, too. And if it is, the work remains there, and it can be done fully. But there needn't be the self-description of the worker, nor the preoccupation with fruit. Now, the fruit is a slightly different issue just another way in which we hurt ourselves when we work. If you look carefully in your jobs, it turns out that we don't seem to have control over the fruit of our labor. Because all that we can do is our best. And then life has a way of yielding a certain... Something comes out of it. If you get attached to the fruit, and this is most dramatically talked about with the greatest depth in the Bhagavad Gita, it's another form of suffering, because sometimes you do your job and you put everything you have into it and there's no fruit, or it isn't quite the way you wanted it to turn out. And so there's a certain wisdom in understanding that process that we don't have control over that aspect of it, and so all we can do is bring our best to what we can do and then, and then watch. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do is finish this because I'd much rather hear what you have to say and for us to uh, go into this issue, and f- including perhaps some of your work experiences here during the retreat. What I'd like to do as a, a kind of a bridge to bringing the practice into daily life is to describe an actual case of someone who was in one of the meditation groups that we had in, in Cambridge a few years ago to give you uh, uh, some sense of how this practice can be brought into work life. Now, this had more to do with the quality of work. This person was doing what she wanted to do. It was still a problem. person was a very um, well-paid, successful, legal typist. More than a typist, a kind of a uh, legal assistant, typist, a whole bunch of things rolled into one, but a lot of it had to do with uh, with typing and arranging of materials, legal materials. This person came to meditation with high blood pressure, spastic colon, and a few other things that I've forgotten about, and really looked a mess. Okay, the meditation practice unfolds not too differently from the way it is for all of us with the sitting, and breath, and all that, and after a while. Since this uh, particular uh, situation was not at a retreat center, but in Cambridge, um, the conversation naturally came around to the applications of meditation in daily life. And so this person started to talk about her situation. Where does this high blood pressure come from? Spastic colon and a few other things. Uh, headaches. Migraine headaches. Very nervous. A lot of anxiety. Okay, I'll be trimming it down. This actually happened over a period of about a month and a half. And so I'm simplifying it. But the essence is this, is what happened. What was suggested is, take a look at your work. Just what is your actual job? Not what you think your job is, not the official job description. But when you come into work, just what happens? What do you do? And the doing is not simply to bear operations, but what is the emotional climate? What do you bring to the work? What do you take home from it? And when the person challenged their own work situation, which she had not done, she was just in a very busy rat race. And what is being asked of us all in a life of awareness is to, in a sense, challenge ourselves. Challenge the validity of some of the ways in which we live. And there's always the question, is that what you want to do? Because it brings it makes trouble. But if something is smooth, it will withstand the challenge. If it isn't, my own feeling is wonderful, because the challenge then takes you deeper. It's It's positive to be challenged. Without any challenges, the creative aspect of life is lost. So what she discovered was that she had a lot of problems around being given too much work and often not feeling totally competent about the work. And so typically what would happen would be a pile of stuff on her desk, she'd come in in the morning and see it, and feel anxious—a lot of anxiety. Feel that the deadline that was set for it was not enough time. She wasn't sure if she could do it right. This is a subjective feeling, even though she'd been doing it for 11 years in a top law firm and was very well paid. And so there would be anxiety. The anxiety was not met directly. What she would then do would be to to drop it to leave all that work that was piled on her desk and enter into a flurry of coffee breaks and conversations with other people working there until she'd used up even more time, making her situation even more desperate. Phone calls and you know, just anything but dealing with that. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. Until what she would do is sort of back herself up against the wall. So she'd used up so much time with all these by-plays and digressions But now it was truly a desperate situation, outwardly and inwardly. And then, like a bull, she would come charging towards her desk, you know, with this extra energy, born of desperation, and do a a super-duper job. You know, wonderful. And her boss was extremely pleased with all this. Meanwhile, her adrenal glands were shot at the age of about 35, let alone, who knows what other aspects of her body. And so this was going on for a number of years, not facing the problem, but developing some kind of a compensation and getting energy from that. And, of course, the physical system started to fall apart. Okay, now she was coming home and meditating every day and being encouraged to go into the workplace and to see what she was actually doing. And, of course, it became very difficult to keep that way of life up. Have you learned here that even some small things that we do, when you start to pay attention, sometimes it's humiliating. You can't follow through some of the ways in which Perhaps we've been living all our life in the, in the light of awareness when you see it and taste it. and you know, It's just not a good way to live. Okay, so the suggestion, as you might expect, is very similar to what we're doing here. Step number one don't compensate for the fear, or don't deny the fear. You come into the office and there's a big pile of work and you feel anxious or ang- and angry, I forgot, angry at her boss. Look at it, just as if it were here. Okay, what she found was she couldn't. I'm, I'm really going to move through this. Try and stay with me. It's kind of a painstaking blow by blow, detail by detail. She found that she couldn't do that. It was just too highly charged. So then instead of looking directly at it, it was suggested that bring awareness to the body or the breath or something that's more imaginable, more manageable. And so what she started to do is when she had that feeling, sit down at her desk before all the coffee breaks and the you know everything else started to proliferate. And she would just be with the anxiety, but in the body, because it seemed easier to grasp at the body, or just be with the breath. With practice, what was possible come to the anxiety directly. And then she's the one who started to see how this was all going. and She saw the pattern of the coffee breaks. I, I of the coffee breaks. I I reported it to you. But she did not know that she was doing it that way and for that reason until bringing awareness to it. So she scrutinized her work situation. She was able to see how she was using coffee breaks and starting conversations and staying out for lunch a little bit longer and making additional phone calls and then having all that energy from the desperation. She saw that. And more and more, it became impossible to do. Okay, so what started to happen was the anxiety started to melt away. And so now she had much more time and a realistic task and she could follow through and it became a lot easier. Okay, it's still, even with that, the anxiety was minimized. She didn't do any of the extra stuff. But there still was too much work as far as she was concerned. That was still, in a sense, an objective problem. And now what was the problem? The problem was that her boss was giving her more than she felt was correct. Or is that a, it was too much of a workload. Okay, so now the meditation enters into a new phase. Well, what do you do? Just carry around resentment towards your boss? Step number one, find out that you have resentment. She was barely aware of it. It would have been much too painful. And so there was a lot of jokes about her boss and you know, the way in which aggression is channelled. So, she became in touch, that word that we use more and more, she became in touch with how angry she was with him and how unfair she felt that this workload was for her. So then the next issue comes up. Okay, what will you do about it? She brought awareness to the anger, but she felt that something needed to be done in the world, as from time to time has come up. You've seen, you can't just sit. Sometimes the sitting points to something to be done in life. And then it's a challenge that we live our understanding. Or does the understanding just die on us? Out of hesitation, postponement, and so forth. She realized that she had to talk to her boss. Next step in this unfoldment. Tremendous terror at talking to her boss. Why? Well, I might lose my job. This is a really good job. It pays a lot of money. Jobs are scarce, etc. So this is not a kind of Hollywood happy ending use of meditation. At that point, she faced a choice. And she had to make it. I mean, no one could really make it for her. They could, but it would be doing her a great disservice. She might have concluded that I have an enormous amount of anger. This is not a fair workload. But my sense is that if I told my boss that there are many people who want this job, he would just fire me. And I'm not willing to take that chance. Okay then you understand your predicament, that's your existential situation, and then you have to learn to live that way. And for a short while, that's what she decided. And so what she had to do then was to work with the constant coming up of this feeling of anger and injustice, being overworked, but not wanting to talk to her boss. And then the next step was she realized this is going to go on forever. In other words, it would be sort of like, during the week you go wild, and then on Sunday there's confession. You know, and then the priest absolves you and then you just start it all over again. And so what she was doing was the situation was untenable and then the anxiety and the res- rage and re- resentment would come up. She'd meditate her way through it and then it would start again. And so it would go. We, and there's no way out of that. It would just go, she could live that way. So then she decided that she, would take, she was going to take a chance and then she had to work with her fear. Okay, she spoke to her boss and it turned out that he had no idea that he, that he was giving her so much, and they talked back and forth, and what came out of it was not that he, uh, you know, just totally went along with what she wanted, but he did change it somewhat. And I don't know where it went because you know it kept going. Can you see the potential of this practice in the middle of your life, or is it because tomorrow you'll be leaving here, and? Meditation isn't here. You won't be leaving meditation here. You'll just be leaving this building behind. But you're going to carry your mind with you. And the practice is portable. It goes wherever you want it to go. It's, it's a, you know, like those earphones that everyone listens to. It's wherever you are. It's just bringing that kind of care and sensitivity to it. What I'd like to hear is anything that's on your mind about this whole issue of work. And if anyone has learned anything about themselves regarding the work here, in other words, you've all had jobs. One question that I would have immediately would be, did you find that there's a different attitude towards the work assignment and towards sitting in the hall? Now, please, I'm not asking this question to intimidate you or to make you feel bad, or there's no right or wrong answer. It's more to learn. In other words, did you learn anything from attempting to bring awareness to whatever your work job was, cutting vegetables or sweeping? Did that produce anything of interest to anyone? Any self knowledge? Well, I found that uh, I was uh, cleaning toilets. <laughs> Great.
1: that I was some of my happiest times were cleaning the toilet. <laughs> here? Yeah. Right. At other places. But, happiest time right here was with yeah. that work. Um.
0: Maybe you've <laughs> discovered your true vocation. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how we got to to our
1: job because I thought that it would be a new trick to have you do some sort of variation of what you do in life and then see it in a new <laughs>
0: um, but I don't think probably
1: people have time to like it. I rather doubt it. <laughs> but,
0: uh, Maybe it's the so called karma that did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I enjoy, I think the thing I enjoyed about it was uh, I don't know, doing, it, doing it well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice what a genius?
2: <laughs>
0: Do you clean this toilet cleaner than your toilet at home? How come? Are they the same or different? They're the same. Same function too, right? Why? I wonder.
1: Doing a service, in fact, um, treating it as an honorable uh, thing to do.
0: (laughs) Here, because? Why is it so honorable here? What's so honorable about this place? That
1: was just the way that I brought
0: the thought to it. What? That was just the thought that I brought to it,
1: um, or the attitude. And at home, I just don't, once a week, if that. Right. uh, Rush through it. Don't treat it as
0: an honorable task. Don't even think about it. Do you see what (coughs) the issue
3: there? I've discovered the same kind of response in a job that I do here, which I've done for what seem endless years at home, uh, which is to wash pots and pans. And to do the breakfast pots and pans turned out from the very first day to be uh, just one of the exhilarating high points of every day. Uh, They come in unpredictable, endless numbers. (laughs) There's no knowing how many there will be. They may be enough to go past the work hour. They may be only 15 minutes worth of washing. But one has to begin from the first moment with great care and great speed. (laughs) One is working with somebody else as well. And my first co-worker was a great bodhisattva. It was Louis. (laughs) (laughs) My present co-worker is also a great bodhisattva, but in a very different way.
0: Mm. Uh, Did you do a better job here than at home?
3: I think the dishes are just as clean in the end, but the quality of excitement that goes (laughs) in is very different. Why? Why? Now we have two people. Um, Why is that? There's a wholeheartedness. This is a transfer, I think, from what we're doing right here in the hall. Exactly. Or with eating meditation or whatever. Uh, But uh, it simply comes to a visible focus. In the dishwashing, because there there is an actual measurement uh, that one can set uh, against something that one knows very well in, in ordinary life.
0: Tiny.
4: huh? I'm not sure if someone here picks these jobs for us out of some sort of knowledge, <laughs> uh, or whether every job is, you know, will do it for us. But I spent a lot of time wiping tables in my profession, and I hate it. my profession. I mean, I just put it off and uh, it's all the last thing. And they uh, show up here and they tell me to wipe tables. <laughs> 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 Which is a wonderful experience.
0: Really? Okay. Now, so it's the same for you. Oh yeah. What is this? Some kind of magic place? <laughs> Do you remember the example uh, at the beginning of the retreat of the person who did the slow walking and the slow eating so beautifully here and then back in Cambridge, you know, wolfed everything down and were just staggering all over the place? Do you see that, what the relationship, what the mind is doing? Also, Vimo and I can't be, maybe we could be piped into your you know, housekeeper, reminding you to do that. When we leave here, then it's going to be, you know, everyone's got to do it themselves. There isn't that same encouragement and momentum.
2: I'm kinda of anxious to wipe one of
4: those table <laughs> you, when you like when you get I back.
1: Yeah.
5: Yeah. yeah. mine mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, is not job related here. That wasn't a very pleasant job I had and I would enjoy it just as much at home. But I found in my room that I'm extremely ordered to the point of being uh, I was amazed at myself how how often I swept that room, how nothing could be around. Uh, I was just spotless. I had to, and I'm not that way.
0: At home. You know?
5: hmm. And I realized something that I really, when I have a clear mind, or it seems like I have a clear mind here, that I need the room clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, that's how I made the connection And I I couldn't even stand a piece of clothing on the chair. That bothered me. And um, so I was really sort of shocked at myself. For the pain in the neck I might become at home now. So <laughs> <to> Everyone <laughs> take it after themselves. So that's uh, mm-hmm. a revelation for me. I hope it carries on. <laughs>
6: I had the job to clean the meditation hall and in the description it said put all the mats (coughs) nice and square and keep them all right and I first I felt terribly honored how could they give the job to somebody who has not meditated and has never been at the center I mean has not meditated long and has never even been here and I felt terribly terribly honored oh yes that's nice. and then of course what happened is they know what they know. They, I mean, they know what they're doing that way to give me this honor, which made me happy. But also, I thought they don't know what they're doing because here comes the German housewife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
6: I, and I went with them up. I had studied three or four different techniques to do it the best way and also the quickest way, and discovered lots of things about that. But and I didn't do a better job than I always do because when I clean, I clean. I do it wholeheartedly. I may not like it, but I'll do it. Actually, I did like to do it here, but it's the same thing. Nothing got any cleaner as it always does. But what I want to tell you (laughs) is the German house at the square mat. I was simply overwhelmed by them because how I started is put everything in exact order and what amazed me how much I enjoyed setting things right. And I thought, here you go again because ever since I was a child, they told me I'm judgmental. And I discovered this... This deep-seated, irrational pleasure (laughs) (laughs) at putting, like, taking the blankets and folding them, and
1: exactly
6: (coughs) 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 putting them exactly on the top of the pillow, and putting the pillow exactly in the middle of everything, and I felt, something is funny here, it didn't need to be that good and be done. And so I found the child in me back, you see. I thought I had mellowed to a great deal and to a great extent and people didn't call me judgmental anymore. And I was still wary of being it. And here it was back again. I set them right in the quiet, you see? Like when they were gone. And after I discovered that, I I felt very ashamed and slightly humiliated about this pleasure I had. I was all right to set them straight, but to do it with such...
2: How do you call it, like, I don't know the word, zest. <laughs> Zeal? There's
6: something just
5: not quite right, you see? Because I was
6: telling him how to sit. I was, also was rearranging these, these making a little broady, <laughs> <laughs> And then I watched myself and found really that every day I did do a little less of straightening out and a little more of just ordinary cleaning. And I was, with every minute, like when it was almost right, I left it there. I made it almost a task for myself. When the pillow was not exactly in the middle, I said, This is not enough, you can't keep it. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> so,
6: it's, it's a little interesting story of, now how do we call this? Of uh, judging oneself in a mellow way. In other words, finding out about oneself. Yes. And doing some little learning there in a very practical sense after I had discovered that I hadn't really given up all I thought I had given up.
2: A a few things about work and here and in everyday life. My job was to um, prepare salads every day. And um, I've had a kind of varied uh, work career and it's it seems as always in transitions in my life I find myself back in in uh, kitchens um, by choice in part I mean I didn't choose this job so this wasn't by choice but um, between two major careers I wanted to bake baking bread for a year and um, had done that ten years ago and. Uh, So it's kind of been like that. Anyway, cutting uh, the vegetables and washing lettuce and picking out slugs and all of that was (laughs) really... uh, uh, I really loved it. I really found how... It had an enormous... uh, I mean, only as I reflect on it had a lot of meaning. And I know it just left me feeling very peaceful. Doing that, and it was an interesting thing because we were assigned um, that job during the shortest w- uh, walking period of the day, and so it invariably ran over. And the choice of, of it running over into the, the, this uh, part of the city, I felt really comfortable with because it, I felt attentive so attentive in there that I didn't feel like I was missing anything. Mm-hmm. and um, It was really nice. <coughs> Today cleaning my room, thinking about leaving tomorrow and uh, using that the afternoon bear awareness to do that, uh, bear attention time. I had an interesting experience. Uh, one of the things on my door was to make sure you clean the mirror. And I'd been shading in that mirror all week thinking it was relatively clean. and. I was cleaning it and um, it was, oh, lo and behold, I mean, I was looking back at this face and the mirror was totally different than I'd been using all week. And it was kind of a special moment. Um, it kind of really symbolized in part what had taken place. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: Did you see your true face? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: But a cleaner rendition. <laughs> um, the other thing is that work for me in everyday life has been, um, I mean, I can't separate it at all from the, my spiritual life. So, um, I guess it might be partly because the thrust of my training has been to make that occur, I mean, to be really conscious of that every day, how it works itself, how I unfold by my job, and in my job, and that work and job, to call on me continually to pull resources out of myself that I'm not, uh, that are kind of latent. They have to come to the fore, very much like the example you gave of the, 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 uh, the woman in Cambridge. So I, f- I found that for the last 10 or 12 years to be just a very special part of my life. One difference I found cutting the vegetables here and at home is that, and I used to give great care to, to, to it at home as well, but less so recently, is that, um, my quality of attention in doing it was was more refined here, and I thought, well, maybe it's partly because of time, but um, there's more than that. I think as well. I think it's just uh, it's partly my the attention I brought to it as well.
0: There are ways in which uh, work is dealt with, for example, in one, one way in which Japanese Zen monasteries work, which will give you a sense that some of this is coming here, up spontaneously here. One thing they'll do is everyone, um, all the monks, rotate so that nobody has the same job all the time. And so that some of the jobs are, let's say, nurturing jobs, where you're, let's say, cooking, helping people, um, picking their spirits up if they're down, and others where you have to play the tough guy. You know, when people are falling asleep in the, in, the, in the meditation hall, screaming at them or hitting them with a stick, and you rotate through it, including, and some of the jobs are quite menial. Uh, in one of the best monasteries that I spent a little bit of time at, even the Zen master was part of it, and you'd see a, a Zen master in maybe his '60s or 70s, cleaning the toilet, mm-hmm. or you see them working out in the fields. Or is it, it's totally integrated into the life. It's not superior or inferior. And for most of us, that's a foreign idea. We have to overcome a lot of aversion. Uh, The lack of fulfillment in work. Work is something you do, you put your time in, and the whole point is to get out of work, to get as much free time to do what you really wanna do. Uh, In the kitchen of this particular monastery, which is a very traditional approach to cooking, they give a a lot of instructions to the people who work in the kitchen to um, treat the food with the same care as you're preparing the food, with the same care that you would treat your eyes. And then it goes into instructions that, like um, the meals are quite uneven in these monasteries. That is, if there's a lot of donations, there might be a lot of good food. And if not, it'll be a very simple meal or a lot of leftovers. And there the challenge is to bring the same quality of attention to the leftovers. Let's say a really ordinary meal compared to almost a banquet. they really just ordinary leaves and a few, you know, a little bit of rice. And it goes on like that. Life itself provides us with enough of those opportunities, really. But that, that's an interesting way to do it. Anyone have any reactions to the job situation? You know, finding an appropriate work, right livelihood, that aspect of the talk. Anyone? Was that relevant for anyone here?
2: One thing that you mentioned that was really relevant for me was I reflected on uh, four or five years ago when I first met you. I was baking bread in a natural foods restaurant between uh, just finishing a very kind of professional career, so to speak, and not ready to go on to the next one. And for a while in that job, which I'd done before in another place, I uh, well, when I first took it, I really relished it because I had to get up at 3 o'clock. In the morning, and um, I tried to do my my sitting before that, and then go off to this job because it was baking bread, <laughs> and I really it was a special thing for me. And but then what happened was here I was in this very hustly bustly very popular restaurant in Cambridge, right in Harvard Square, and I would see a lot of people that were doing the work that I had done—people who were therapists, people that were educators—and um, here I was walking around in a white apron and you know sweating and and needing bread all day and I remember those distinct moments when I would feel very self-conscious because here I was in course, doing this menial work in relationship to what they were doing, and that's what was happening inside and uh, I remember really having to kind of really confront that and look at it and work with it and talk to my wife about it and really kind of come back to feeling this is not what I was doing and I'd actually chosen to do it again and and feeling good about it. And I can remember the kind of restlessness of that few week period when I didn't kind of want to go out to the front where everyone was and stayed in the back and um,
0: so a lot of the problem was perhaps what you thought other people thought of you? Yeah, exactly. Right.
2: Like here I was this person with all this education who'd done all this particular stuff and and now he was back in the in the kitchen eating bread and and I had to re recycle that whole process yeah. of by doing this over again Is just a cop out and blah 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 until finally I could bring myself to it again in a, in a good way. So it's very much what you were talking about in terms of rehabilitating oneself right in that job
0: anyone else relate to the whole right livelihood issue anyway
4: well I'm, I'm sort of in a what I consider an ideal work situation I've been in it for seven or eight years now and uh, one of the things that I've realized is that is that I' um, even, even though I consider it ideal, very often in past years, I've suffered a lot on um, at my job. And it's just been, it's been my own fault. Uh, brought a lot of, uh, negativity and uh, self doubt to the work. And even though, even with that, I, I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> but I, but I, I I'm, I've been thinking how much more, uh, fulfilling uh, it can be if, if those factors are, uh, you know, toned down, minimized.
0: How would you go about doing that? How can you apply what we've been learning here to your work situation?
4: Well, simply uh, accepting all the all the various situations that come up in my work situation, uh, being there with them instead of resisting them. I'm a teacher. So, I, I see so many varied situations that uh, I have my favorites and I, you know, I, I have my uh, ones that I, I, I uh, would ruin my whole week. One one class. <laughs> it's, you know, Black Tuesday. When <laughs> <laughs> I see a certain group of people. And um, <laughs> I realized. Uh, that uh, that is not
0: necessarily a, a Black Tuesday. If I you know, if I could make a suggestion about that, it's come from a certain amount of experience that people have had in, say, work situations which push push our buttons. Often people will think that they're being, let's say these students come in and they push your button, right? You're, what, offended or annoyed or whatever it is. People will think that they're being aware of their work situation. What is really happening is after it's over, or five minutes later, or ten minutes later, they're reviewing what's happened to them. And they're saying, boy, I went in there and they did this and I felt terrible, etc. But what we're trying to develop here, our reflexes have to become very, very quick. And so as as they push your button, the awareness has to be right there with it, in the moment that it happens. It's not to say that there isn't some value in reflecting on it afterwards. Sometimes that can be useful too. But if we don't develop that ability to meet the response. In other words, there's an objective challenge. They come in and then you have a subjective reaction to it. And awareness has to be there right with it. If it does, it doesn't take root. You feel the annoyance or the apprehension and the bottom falls out. I mean, test it. See, it takes practice. It means sometimes requires um, when that time comes here, you know, you know, they're about to come in in five minutes to form the intention to remain alert while they're there, knowing full well that they're going to push your buttons or have that impact on you. And little by little, learning how to be so supple with the application of awareness that we, we're with what's happening as it happens.
4: Yeah, the problem I have in those situations is that I have a predetermined set of reactions which I'm assuming they're going to react in a certain way when they do like I have my plan, but Mm -hmm. my plan is often not appropriate.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.